Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monocle 24 with me, Carlotta Rebello. Over the next 60 minutes, we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monocle 24, with highlights from our studios here at Midori House and from around the world. This week, how much should you care if your country loses at football? Ah, the Euros. Like their big cousin, the World Cup, this seasonal footy fest conjures a late 80s, early 90s school summer holiday vibe. Tom Edwards will tell us of his cooling love for the England team. Plus, do superheroes have sex? Looking at the Marvel or DC films, perhaps not that much. Sex is a contentious issue in today's cinema. The sense of titillation is perhaps a bit forgotten when you look at today's blockbusters. Our senior correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, lays bare the issue of sex in the multiplex. All that and much, much more over the next hour here on The Curator with me, Carlotta Rubello. We begin today's show with a recap of some of the things we know today that we didn't know seven days ago. Here's Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller, with this week's What We Learned. We learned this week of an exciting new patriotic endeavour for Brexit Britain. No, don't. No, no, no. Please don't. Please don't. Don't hear it. Oh, God, Andrew, no. It's been five years, you treacherous metropolitan latte-slurping elitists. Get with the programme. We learned that June 25th is, it says here, One Britain, One Nation Day, a name right there likely to prompt questions in large swaths of Scotland, a fair whack of Northern Ireland, a not inconsiderable section of Wales, and, if we're honest, quite a lot of treacherous metropolitan latte-slurping elitist London. Visit the Monocle Café, 18 Chilton Street. We learned that as part of the One Britain, One Nation Day enterprise, schoolchildren the length and indeed breadth of these sceptred isles were to be encouraged at 10am on One Britain, One Nation Day to rise as one nation and one Britain in patriotic song. Specifically, this patriotic song. still have that gong. We then learned of quite the ethical dilemma. While the song is obviously objectively terrible and the sentiments animating it arguably somewhat sinister and the entire endeavour daft in the extreme, the anthem was in fact written by a bunch of primary school kids in Bradford. Yeah, we feel pretty bad about it as well. Although not as bad as whoever chose the date of June 25th will have felt when someone told them that the summer school term in Scotland finished on June 23rd. Elsewhere. We 
Sound of a week's news cycle furnishing bountiful temptation to whimsical news monologues with a weakness for lamentable puns. Hang in there, we'll make it quick. We learned that one of the principal henchmen of former US President Benito Cartman has taken independent legal counsel. And we learned that his name is Matthew Calamari. So we're wondering if he's offering a squid pro quo. Yes, thank you. And we learned police in California investigating the theft of 19 metric tons of pistachio nuts have made an arrest and can therefore claim to have cracked the case, made good on their threat to the miscreant that we'll cash you, etc. Nearly done. And we learned that a ceasefire has been declared in the so-called sausage war between the UK and the EU. A compromise has been struck under which the current grace period has been extended and we hope you're enjoying the subtle sound effect of a can being kicked down the road. But it does seem to be the case that the worst is over. Look, you don't like it. Tell the world to make the news less stupid. Speaking of which, we learned further of the thinness of the skin which envelops Hungary's choleric Prime Minister Viktor Orban. Orban bailed at the last minute on attending what turned out to be Hungary's valiant two-all draw with Germany in Munich, apparently for fear of being seen anywhere near some sort of rainbow-related colour scheme after Hungary's parliament occasioned justifiable outrage around Europe by passing an idiotic law forbidding any depiction of homosexuality that might be encountered by impressionable people under 18 and thereby betraying a complete lack of understanding of how this stuff works. And why yes we are soundtracking a bit on Viktor Orban with Sylvester, we are that childish. Sticking with the cunningly established themes of Hungary and football, it may seem to the untrained observer like we just crank this stuff out, but we don't, can we have some sort of doubtless cacophonous mashup of the Hungarian and Romanian national anthems? Because we also learned that two Eastern European capital cities have perilously similar names. At least if by we, we mean a party of French football fans who should have paid more attention in geography classes. The hapless supporters secured tickets for France's recent European Championship match against Hungary and duly packed their accordions and pointlessly long bread and booked flights to... Bucharest. Well, quite. Upon arrival in Romania's capital, they further assumed that the Ukrainian fans already gathered to see their team play Austria at the Arena Nationale were in fact Hungarians and so did not realise their error until it was too late to get a train to Budapest for the match they came to see. 
However, in the kind of bleak irony which has underpinned decades of excruciating French cinema, the fates have dictated that France's round of 16 match against Switzerland actually is happening in Bucharest on Monday. We have not learned, however, whether the bungling adventurers have stuck around for it. Because we don't care. For Monocle24, I'm Andrew Moore. Thanks, Andrew. Next up, we look back at our weekly series. The UEFA European Football Championship is well and truly underway across Europe, which means a bitterly divided Monocle 24 newsroom. There have been highs and lows already for certain members of the M24 team, but sometimes just having your country in the fight is victory enough. Monocle's resident Finn, Marco Zippi, has more now on what it means when your country qualifies for the very first time. Before I talk about football, shall we go 15 years back in time? For a long time in my home country of Finland, we had a saying that hell freezes over before Finland wins the Eurovision Song Contest. And then when we least expected it, we won that competition in 2006. Hard rock, hallelujah! Hard rock, I know it probably doesn't seem like such a big thing to happen for a nation that had already claimed fame for Nokia, Santa and some other things. But after that win, we all of a sudden felt like we were a bit more important and respected than ever before. I know psychologists and therapists would probably have much to say about this urge for validation, but that's the small country syndrome and I'm sure Estonians, Icelanders and New Zealanders do recognise what I'm talking about. After winning the Eurovision, we set ourselves new goals and I am quite sure many people started saying that hell will freeze over before Finland wins the World Cup or European Championships in football. And now there has been an unforeseen football fever in Finland after the nation made it to the European Championships. Many people I know did travel to Copenhagen to see the first match, knowing this would be something written in the history books. I don't think anyone really thinks that Finland is going to win this time round, but I believe that making it to the competition is actually about longer-term benefits than just being able to watch the Finnish team play. For example, when I read British newspapers, I'm delighted to see Finland being mentioned so often, and this time thanks to something else than for Santa the Moomins or for us supposedly being the happiest nation in the world. Sure, we are often good athletes, but sadly a big part of the world doesn't know or care, because what we are really good at is winter sports, and the likes of ski jumping, ice hockey and biathlon don't have much appeal in, say, Australia, the Mediterranean, Brazil, or even the UK. But football does interest the world, and we are now getting noticed. For us, it's one more international arena where we get to present ourselves. And considering the global attention, it's not a bad place to be as we want to spread the word of our little nation. 
Finland won't bring the cup home, but for us, just being in the European Championships is something we didn't even dare to dream of some years ago. And somehow now, even though I don't even consider myself a football enthusiast at all, Finland feels just a little bit more relevant and significant than it did only some weeks ago. For Monaco, I am Markus Hippi. Thanks, Marcus. Sadly, Finland didn't make it out of the group stages, but England's victory over the Czech Republic on Tuesday ensured they topped their group. But not everyone is passionate about supporting the national side. Here's Monaco's Tom Edwards. Ah, the Euros. Like their big cousin, the World Cup, this seasonal footy fest conjures a late 80s, early 90s school summer holiday vibe. Maradona at Mexico 86. He won't need any of them. Oh, you have to say that's magnificent. Rude and Marco at Euro 88. Mateus, majestic at Italia 90. Denmark's impossible triumph in 92. Baggio's blunder in USA 94. What memories. He's missed it. And Brazil win the World Cup. What's instructive about those examples is that, bar the occasional flirtation with the business end, my national team, England, were never in the trophy mix. Sometimes they weren't even there at all. Thanks again, Graham Taylor. Oh, fucking... Do I not like that? So go. There's seemingly no limit to the ever-tame Three Lions' ability to prove wholly irrelevant, or at best, just an amusing aside at the main event. This is the key reason... Why, I just, I can't get myself G'd up for England at the Euros. Another factor in my inability to throw my middle-aged weight behind England is my quotidian interest in fall-at-the-last specialist Tottenham Hotspur. The tribalism of the club game means that when it's time to root for the national team, I'm conflicted. Deep-rooted enmity towards Spurs hate figures like Tony Adams, John Terry... Sol Campbell. Basically, anyone that plays or ever played for Arsenal or Chelsea means that cheering for them in an England shirt demands a level of pure sporting revisionism that is entirely beyond me. Well, there it is. It's Liverpool's night. Silverware is the currency of success in football, and Liverpool have just hit the Champions League jackpot. It's number six. It's a brilliant night for the team. A group of players has been so... A third issue is the capacity of Joe and Joanne Public here to overlook not only their own club loyalties, but seemingly the evidence of their eyes and the historical record when it comes to England's abysmal tournament performance. Mr and Mrs Public are badly affected by nostalgia. This sentimental yearning for some imagined successful past is perhaps the most irritating aspect of the English footballing condition. Yes, OK, we did win the World Cup in 1966. Yes, as Skinner and Badil captured the zeitgeist in music 30 years later, England reached the semis. But the red top perpetuated idea that this could be our year every two or four, or in this case, weirdly, three years, is as ridiculous as Nobby's dancing or Chrissy Waddle's mullet. Thinking back over the years of English competitive ineptitude, another much darker thought occurs to me. Could it be that England's ability to flatter to deceive, to promise so much and yet never to deliver, is actually just too similar to Tottenham? Maybe I want to 
masochistically own the despair and disappointment just for my team. I don't want to share the way that this crushingly inevitable failure feels with everyone in England, because then it, well, it wouldn't be special anymore. So I'll do my best to cheer England on as their tournament status teeters, and I'll make the right noises when they head out in, say, the round of 16, after extra time against a team they really should be beating. And when Les Bleus, Oder Die Mannschaft, or Il Azuri, lift the trophy at Wembley next month, I will be looking ahead to the imminent return of the domestic football season and all of its attendant frustrations, disappointments and false dawns. I'm sticking to my own little Tottenham world, where I can believe again after an unexpected win, then experience a wobble once reality catches up with defeat snatched from the proverbial jaws, and then, probably around Christmas time, wallow in self-pity when the wheels come right off the lily-white bus. We are Tottenham, and we do failure, glorious and inglorious, every single season. That's a record that no international team, even England, can come close to matching. For Monocle, I'm Tom Edwards. Tom Edwards there. And next, we turn to a member of the team who is slightly more confident in her country's abilities. Monaco's culture editor, Chiara Ramella, looks now at her home nation of Italy and the conflict of being slightly too attached to former glories, both on and off the football pitch. Italians have a strange attitude towards their own greatness. Some nations have bags of pride for how modern, contemporary, innovative they are, In Italy, self-worth has a lot to do with what the country used to be. That goes for everything from cultural heritage to food. Sure, cutting-edge art installations may be fashionable now, but which nation was the birthplace of the Renaissance? And people around the world may nowadays enjoy flat whites and cold brews, but what is the real home of espresso? The same applies to football. Italy is a country that is convinced of being good at football because, well, it has historically been good at football. Granted, there are a bunch of countries that just carry that identity with them. People will always just consider the likes of Brazil good, even if they have no idea about who's in the squad that year. Be it because how much people care about the National League, the Serie A, or because of the cultural relevance of calcio in everyday life, played by kids in piazze across the country since time immemorial, Italians are remarkably uncritical when it comes to self-assessment in sport matters. The trophy? It should be ours, naturally. If not, it'll be because somebody got lucky or we stumbled along the way. All of the above explains why the country's failure to qualify in the 2018 World Cup caused a nationwide shock and was considered an abhorrence, a blip against nature. The flip side, this is an incredible achievement by Sweden. I, of course, was amongst a cohort of gobsmacked fans. How could it be possible? The glorious win against France in the 2006 World Cup felt like a recent memory. Grosso's concentrated gaze, the final penalty, all the players rushing onto the field. That was only a few years ago, right? Goal! Goal! 
mondo, campioni del mondo, campioni del mondo, campioni del mondo, abbracciamoci forte e vogliamoci tanto bene. Wrong. Much like my understanding of my own age, an elaborate scheme of self-deceit that makes me believe my teens were only a few years ago, that fateful football match took place, in fact, 15 years ago. All the other tournaments since, they're a big, irrelevant blur. There's a reason why the only football chant I can think of to support my home country features the lyrics Adesso ridacci la nostra gioconda perché siamo noi i campioni del mondo. Which translates to, and now give us the Mona Lisa back, because we are the world champions. In my heart of hearts, we genuinely still are. All the same, when the Euros began this year, I tried not to expect too much. The stinging memory of failure was still too recent. There's only so much you can repress an instinct, though. Watching an Italy game, the child within me simply expects us to win. That's the standard. Everything else is an unfortunate exception. And so I watched, tentatively, as Italy took to the pitch against Turkey and triumphed. By the time we beat Switzerland 3-0 a few days later, there was no holding back anymore. We would win the whole thing. What a good strike and it's three. Immobile has his goal. His second of the tournament. Revitalized. Some colleagues and friends are under the impression that watching an Italy game is a boring pursuit, that my side play conservatively, that they're too defence-heavy, that there's no esprit or experimentation in our game. They suggest that the way Italians play football is opposite to the way we live. They fail to understand the methodical nature hidden inside many of us. Most of all, they think we watch the game for entertainment. They don't understand that love in Italy is serious business. Plus, have you seen the way we're playing this year? It's pretty vigorous, attack-led stuff. Proof of the fact that we can win in any which way. And in all honesty, we're only ever tuning in to confirm what we already know. That we're good at football. Because we've always been good at football. For Monocle in London, I am Chiara Rimella. Stand by for action. That was Monocle's Chiara Ramella, and to hear the full series, head over to monocle.com forward slash radio. You're listening to The Curator on Monocle 24 with me, Carlotta Ribello. Staying with football now and to the world's oldest international football championship, which, against all odds, kicked off in Brazil earlier this month. The original hosts, Argentina and Colombia, were forced to cancel due to the pandemic and due to protests. But humble Uruguay is also playing an important role during the competition. The government helped secure jobs from China for all regional players and in return have been promised a big championship final in Montevideo in October. Monaco's Latin American affairs correspondent Lucinda Elliott sent us this dispatch from the Uruguayan capital. In recent weeks, on entering my local supermarket, national Uruguayan flags, football stickers and mini blue and white Vuvuzelas have lined the gondolas at the checkout. 
The poster above reads, Copa America, you deserve it. And I kept thinking since, do we though? In a region blighted by a brutal wave of coronavirus with no nation spared, the tournament this June, that includes 10 Latin American countries, has moved from the back pages right to the front. First, original co-hosts, Argentina and Colombia, were forced to cancel abruptly in May. The latter due to street demonstrations against its government. The former, just across the river from me, because infections were catapulting and hospitals at near capacity. So who could welcome fans? The country with the highest number of deaths to the virus, of course. Former 2019 Copper America hosts, Brazil. So let me make it very clear. If it is up to the federal government, Copa America will happen in Brazil. Since the beginning of the pandemic, I've been saying, I'm sorry for the deaths, but we need to continue with living in our lives. President Jair Bolsonaro made it clear that he approved of a championship, reportedly accepting the invite within just 10 minutes and at a time when his Brazilian ministers, senators and health experts are being scrutinised live on television each afternoon in a Covid inquiry into the disastrous handling of the pandemic. Some governors, a handful of sponsors and even players from the national team weren't so keen. Several refused to host matches or take to the pitch, and a request was made to the country's Supreme Court to cancel altogether. El Supremo Tribunal Federal de Brasil rechazó el jueves por mayoría diversas peticiones para suspender la Copa América de Fútbol. Los jueces de la Corte Suprema de Brasil votaron de But the beautiful game has proven to hold an entirely superior position on this continent, one that sits above pretty much everything else. So Venezuela and its seven players who had tested positive for the virus on June 13 opened the show, losing to host Brazil 3-0 in the capital, Brasilia. What stood out to me during the first match wasn't the empty stadium or that TV viewers had said they'd boycott the screening, but that China's Sinovac was a sponsor. Banners of the vaccine brand lined the periphery of the pitch, flashing between beer companies and phone providers. There's a curious diplomatic development when it comes to the Copper America, and Uruguay is quietly but notably involved. the country of fewer than four million people has a better reputation when it comes to its vaccine rollout, with half the population protected with Sinovac doses. Its government helps secure 50,000 more jabs from China for all South American teams so that this event and other football games could go ahead. Comebol, the football confederation of the region, is headquartered in Paraguay, a country that recognises Taiwan, not China, and so needed a hand if it was going to vaccinate players in time to compete. In stepped Uruguayan President Luis Lacalle Pou, bumping elbows with the Chinese ambassador on the tarmac at Montevideo's international airport as the football doses landed, later sitting down together for a traditional barbecue to celebrate when we're all told to stick to our bubbles. So what, if anything, does Uruguay get in return? Well, looking further ahead, the country is due to host the final of another major championship in November, and its main stadium, where the first ever World Cup took place back in 1930, will be given a major revamp. New grass and a VIP area for the Estadio Centenario, plus the funds that come with foreign visitors and television rights. My hunch is Sinovac will also be making another appearance on stadium banners. 
Sport, particularly international sport, is inherently political, and the copper in Latin America is no exception. Perhaps remembered more for being a standout case of COVID vaccine diplomacy in 2021. For Monocle in Montevideo, I'm Lucinda Elliott. Thanks, Lucinda. Still to come here on The Curator, we head to Hong Kong's central harbour front for a tall story. Meet the duo behind the new Netflix film The Disciple and we follow our nose as we tour a fragrance shop here in London. Stay tuned. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. You're with The Curator, our weekly highlights show here on Monocle 24. I'm Carlotta Rebello. For the past few years, a slice of prime Hong Kong real estate has been left empty, right next to the IFC skyscraper and Victoria Harbour, for use as an entertainment venue hosting temporary events from international art fairs to music festivals, winter carnivals, a Formula E road race, and of course, an obligatory giant Ferris wheel. Our Hong Kong bureau chief James Chambers went for a stroll along the central harbour front, just as this reclaimed land is about to be auctioned off by the government to the highest bidder. Summer got off to a colourful start in Hong Kong with the River of Light, a floating 700 metre long artwork made out of 45,000 streamers, which fluttered in the breeze coming off Victoria Harbour. Families sat in the shade beneath this temporary installation, meditating, taking photos and eating al fresco. While it may have felt like a big occasion during these distanced and downsized COVID times, it was nothing like the type of crowded events that usually take place at Hong Kong's central harbourfront event space, an empty patch of land which can host several large events at the same time. A fairground is perhaps the simplest way to describe the central harbourfront event space. There's even a large Ferris wheel. It's one of the few permanent fixtures on the site, among a revolving list of temporary structures, from stages for music festivals to big tents for Christmas carnivals and grandstand seating for Formula E car races. But compared with your average provincial fairground, and the one notable difference is that the central harbourfront event space just so happens to have a prime waterfront address at the centre of one of the most expensive cities on Earth located right in front of one of the world's most iconic skylines. Outdoor events, like Hong Kong's biggest music festival, Clock and Flap, take place against a backdrop of international business, with headliners like HSBC, Standard Chartered and the Mandarin Oriental appearing in lights atop towering commercial buildings. Take a quick look around you and you will see the IFC skyscraper, City Hall, the headquarters of the Hong Kong government, and China's most prominent military garrison. The land the Central Harbourfront event space sits on 
is a result of a major reclamation project that goes back to the 1990s. It was carried out primarily with underground transport in mind, from building MTR subway stations and airport express links, to a huge bypass that takes traffic underneath the centre of Hong Kong. While most of these mega infrastructure projects have now been realised, above ground, the cement has remained empty and undeveloped. A curious sight, particularly when no events are taking place. The Hong Kong government began leasing out the land to a private operator in 2014 as a meanwhile space to host commercial events and entertainment alongside some community and cultural happenings. Clock and Flap is due to return in November after a two-year hiatus caused by the protests and the pandemic. However, the music festival may soon have to find a new home. After seven years, the lease on the land is coming up for renewal. And while the government may extend it for another few years, the central harbourfront event space's days are definitely numbered. One day, this premium fairground will eventually become the centrepiece of the city's new central waterfront. A neighbouring plot of reclaimed land is currently being auctioned off for a new retail and office development in what could become the most expensive land in Hong Kong, if not the world. But until that happens, Hong Kongers will get back to enjoying outdoor events and mixing with crowds at this rarest of rarities, a huge patch of empty space in the heart of Central. Monocle's Hong Kong Bureau Chief James Chambers there for this week's edition of Tall Stories. Now, this week saw the release of a new edition of Confect Corner, Monocle's sister podcast. For the latest episode, the team wanted to see what makes a good summer perfume. So, earlier this week, Confect magazine's editor, Sophie Grove, nipped out of Midori House to visit one of our neighbours, Perfumer H, a fragrance shop and laboratory run by Lynn Harris in the heart of Marlebone. Trained in perfume making in Paris, Harris opened her shop in 2015 and creates scents for every season. Summer 2021 includes fig, orange leaf, heliotrope, incense water and silver. And Sophie went along to give them all a smell for herself. Lynn, hello. It's lovely to be here in your beautiful atelier. In fact, we're in a very cosy basement. It looks like a sort of lovely lab surrounded by vials and bottles. But we wanted to talk about some of the new scents that you've done for summer. And it's quite interesting that summer is a... I mean, it's quite a unique time for fragrance in a way because people are out sort of on holiday and beaches and you live life in a slightly different way and maybe the concepts are also slightly different but I wanted to start with one of your newest fragrances which is called Silver and it's really incredibly beautiful and nuanced and maybe you could introduce it I should say it's Silver Birch (laughs) which is more than a beautiful tree and it's lovely white bark but it's a very elegant scent Yes, silver. It's quite interesting because my concept behind silver is it's, it's, it's quite a, a liberating woody fragrance that um, is for the summer with, with contrasting cooling notes and 
warm notes. So I wanted to have this sort of opposing effect of materials. So I've got the coolness of angelica and pepper, which I thought was quite nice in the summer months. And then I've got this sort of warmth of, of coriander with a little bit of spice, Indian spice, which obviously gives it that sort of crisp warmness. And then I've wrapped, I've fused around some beautiful white woods, so blonde woods of sandalwood, papyrus, and a little bit of cedar. So it's sort of, you know, it's, it, for me, it's being naked in the woods um, and just really letting go of yourself and your senses um, and just letting the fragrance permeate your skin while you're, you're just, you know, breathing the, the beautiful air and, and feeling the sunshine on your, your body. It's amazing how transporting your descriptions are because when you first smell it, you kind of have this wonderful woody hit and then it, it, the imagination just kind of goes to that beautiful glade or <laughs> some lovely kind of hot... It reminds me of sort of Dolce Vargo summer scenes where it's incredibly hot but like grassland and beautiful little groves of these silver, silver birches. But there's also an amazing scent, which is almost a bit punchy, a fig, which is a contrast to this in many ways. And it's interesting because fig you know, has been produced by so many different perfume houses. But this one really feels to me quite unique and it's very, very compelling. Yeah, I mean, I love the simplicity of the word fig. And I just thought I've been playing around for so many years with this fragrance. I connected with this fig. It's, um, it's a warm fig. It's playing with the fig tree and the leaf. So the leaf is very important, the greenness of the leaves, but then combining that with the fruit, but really getting the sap and the sort of balance and harmony of the sap with the, with the green leaf. And, and I did that by bringing in some rose, a really beautiful Turkish rose and some pepper with a, a lovely sort of cedar backdrop. It's a Texan a Texas, which is um, one of my favourite uh, cedar woods. And actually, there's some frankincense as well in the fig, um, which comes from Somalia. And it really, it goes on this fragrance. But a lot of people say, gosh, it's not like fig. But there is this sort of nostalgic sort of glow in the background as you wear it of the sort of fig um, which sort of comforts you. Um, and it's that sort of, as, as you said, Sophie, it's, like, it's that sort of nostalgic sort of jerk, that, that re- nuance that you really love when you're wearing fragrance and just, and especially in the summertime, that, that takes you in that garden where you can just totally be you and, and relax and just, yeah, just go with nature. <laughs> So another scent that caught my nose, as it were, (laughs) is orange leaf, and it's so evocative of summer, possibly more the sort of Iberian summer. (laughs) It's just such a beautiful, beautiful scent, but it it definitely has that that orangey, but then very woody combination, and it's also one of my favourite trees. We're really going for the trees (laughs) here today. That's right, Sophie. I mean, um, the the tree is really the essence of this this collection, and sort of, you know, from the silver birch to the fig tree, and then 
orange, I mean, I just love the orange tree. And in perfumery, we call it the pig of perfumery because we can use every aspect of it. And um, so orange leaf is really sort of giving praise to that notion. And here I've used um, the orange leaf, um, which we, we extract a material called pettigram. And I've fused it with the fruit. And I've fused it as well with the absolute from the, the leaves and the twigs, which is called, it's very interesting material, which is eau de brew, which is like sort of the rubbish. If you translate it in French, it's sort of the rubbish from the orange tree, we sort of this notion so there's no waste as well with the orange tree so this cologne is just really um, in celebration of of those beautiful orange notes and I've brought in some tarragon um, so there's some beautiful sort of lavender tarragon I've got the oranges from Valencia I use that and um, there's a neroli in there which comes from Tunisia amazing to think of a, a Texan cedar. I mean, these are like people now, aren't they? <laughs> and then in a Stetson, and then <laughs> we're in Valencia. Yeah, it, it, again, it's, it takes you on a journey. It's so lovely to be here in London, just thinking about, you know, the Somalian frankincense and the journey that these ingredients have, have come on. It would be great to talk about your approach and your changing approach to sustainability and, you know, provenance, because I know you're you're in the process of, well, I suppose sort of rejigging some of these things. I mean, this is an amazing workshop and you've expanded on, onto Crawford Street to make a refill centre, which is incredibly, well, it's quite pioneering in your industry. But also you've got, you've got some plans to do similar things around Europe. Yeah, no, it's a really exciting moment. I mean, we realised last year um, at the beginning of lockdown how people were really reaching out to us with the candles and uh, the reusability because basically we do this service where we refill candles um, because every, all our candles are made um, in this beautiful hand-blown vessel. And what we want is for you to come back with the, with the vessel um, and then you get a new candle for half price. And it's just been incredible. Last year we, we doubled our sales overnight and we were quite taken back so a site came up on Crawford Street a friend of mine um, had a, an empty space and um, and I and we just said yeah let's let's take it so I've set up a working uh, refill station we're calling it and it's a workshop where we were making everything refilling for our customers so our vision is to have one of these stations in four corners of the of the world and it's a place where you can buy products but you can also see the process of making for me because I've been in the industry for, for for 30 years now I think it's it's really important the transparency and for people to really understand the whole process of of what I do as a perfumer so you know the refill stations will have an element of the fields the you know the where where things come from you will you know I do want to sort of build this sort of connection between my materials and the fragrance itself I think you know we all connect so well with food and fashion but this industry has been so hidden and guarded for so many years and I just really want to sort of change that a little bit if I can.
Sophie Grove, the editor of Confect magazine there, in conversation with Perfumer H founder Lynn Harris in the latest edition of Confect Corner. You're with the curator, our weekly highlights show here on Monocle 24, and I'm Carlotta Ribello. Chaitana Tamani is a filmmaker whose titles include Court and most recently The Disciple, which has just been released by Netflix. Alfonso Cuaron is an Oscar-winning Mexican film director best known for Roma and Gravity. After meeting through a mentoring scheme that resulted in Tamani shadowing Cuaron on the set of Roma, the two have now collaborated on Tamani's film The Disciple, for which Cuaron is the producer. For this week's episode of Monocle on Culture, Robert Bound spoke to the duo about what they have learned from each other's creative processes and about The Disciple, a film about an Indian classical singer striving to become a master of his art. Thank you both for your time today, talking about The Disciple and all the things that that flow from this um, wonderful film. So it's great to have you both on the line. Um, I'm going to ask that classic question first. It's obviously a film about learning from a master, and it's a film about doing something difficult and the sort of purity of art and the purity of thought and all these sorts of things. So how did you two first establish contact and start working working together, I guess? Yeah, so basically I met him because of uh, a mentorship program called the Rolex uh, Mentor Protégé Arts Initiative, where the idea is to get, you know, an established like a master from a discipline and an upcoming emerging artist. And uh, you have to be invited to apply for it. And I knew about this program for a while, but then I heard that it's, uh, you know, that I've been invited to apply and Alfonso is the mentor for that particular year. And I was like, absolutely, I'm going to apply. Then I was lucky enough to, you know, be on the sets of Roma as uh, his shadow. And I, you know, got to see the whole process of uh, Roma's post-production and Alfonso at work. And this was also the time when I was thinking about the disciple. I had this idea in mind. So in a way, he's always been aware of the of the film because I would share ideas with him. I shared the script with him. And in that sense, I was, again, very lucky that he gave his time and his uh, you know efforts even during the making of such an epic movie to this little idea of mine. And then our, I think our, our friendship has kind of evolved over the years and uh, I feel very grateful for it. I, I would say that that story sounds uh, accurate, except uh, when he talks about being in the set of Roma as a shadow. Yeah, that would be the case if shadows can punch you. <laughs> 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 so I think there was something more than a, than a, than a shadow. It was a, it was a constant sounding board. It was a constant conversation. It was a creative conversation. Uh, that in, in which I would question my own process. And that was part of the interesting thing about how that these relationships start happening. It's nice, uh, Chaitanya, to be referred to as a shadow that can lash out and punch you. And that's, that's serious intent is being shown there. But that's the thing is it's, it's easy perhaps to be, and this is perhaps one of the themes of your film, 
of the t- disciple. It's easy to be passive in the in, when you're trying to learn, when you're trying to pick up things, and you're you're on a big production like like Roma and all the rest of it. How <laughs> how facetious is Alfonso being here, and how how much how much of a happy nuisance did you make yourself? I mean that in the best possible way, you know, to 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 get in the way of things and really learn. I must tell you that again, you know, uh, Alfonso has his version of it, and it sounds great. Except I really tried very hard, just like everybody else on set, to be out of his way, uh, because. A, of course, there is a seriousness to to watch a master at work, and when they are so serious and so committed and so passionate about the work that they're trying to create. But B, also, I just wanted to sit back and absorb as much as I could, and really not be a nuisance on set. I I tried my best. I don't know if it worked. Alfonso can tell you that. But I I really it was for me. I knew that this is a once in a lifetime opportunity to be part of such a big project which is being held by a visionary so i would say uh, a lot of that learning was passive in that sense but again you know uh, i was lucky enough to be able to read the script of the film which alfonso very generously shared with me and whenever i had any doubts or any questions he would you know answer them and be absolutely candid and honest so it was a dream you know Alfonso, I wondered whether being aware of the of the script, um, which Titania wrote as well for the disciple, and being aware of that such a singular idea for a story like that, did you kind of vibe off that? Did it remind you perhaps of yourself when you were starting out, and the the necessity of having to kind of balance sort of this kind of artistic purity and the and the, and the realities of filmmaking? What I got really struck by in the screenplay is. Is the greater art of it, the, the, the greater art that is, is pretty much about life and the preconceptions that we made of ourselves and the, the acceptance of where life takes us. Uh, that I think is very poignant in, in the disciple. Yes, it's as much as this relationship between a guy who has like an artistic ambition. But what is interesting is what is behind that artistic ambition and how many kind of misconceptions and how many lies he had told himself in order to, to, to pursue this project, this process. Almost like a fervent religious faith, it's something that starts to be more intangible all the time. And, uh, and I think that that's something that struck me right away. Of course, the, the, from the standpoint of the young artist trying to to break into and, and to get certain recognition, yes, it's I think that anybody that has done any an endeavor and doesn't need to be artistic, you know, it could be scientific, it could be technical, and that's pretty much the same search. I think is the and that is what makes Chaitanya's film so universal. Is yes, he he said it in the context of the classical Indian music, but I think it goes beyond that. It's about just human endeavor. The actor who plays Sharad Titania, am I right in thinking, having read around this a little bit, that this is his first kind of, although he's a classic, he's a he's a singer. This is his first kind of film role, because I mean that's. <laughs> That's quite an amazing feat to have found that found that actor and cast him. 
Uh, yeah, it is. It is his first film role, and um, from his very first audition, we knew that he's someone special. But it was a tough, tough role to pull off, and there was no way of knowing how it's going to turn out uh, till it was all done, you know. But I, I really think he's a gift to the film, and we really, really lucked out with him, and he gave a lot. to the film you know and he worked really really hard to make it look so effortless the filmmaker chatania tamani and the oscar winning film director alfonso quaron in conversation with monocle's robert bound earlier this week Staying with the silver screen for our final highlight of the show, sex has become a contentious issue for cinema and it's disappearing from blockbusters. Monocle's senior correspondent Fernando Augusto Pacheco argues for the return of sex to the multiplex. Do superheroes have sex? Looking at the Marvel or DC films, perhaps not that much. Sex is a contentious issue in today's cinema, perhaps more in the Anglo-Saxon world than in other countries, but still. As a fan of both erotic thrillers and French drama, I don't mind a bit of nudity, and I actually think sex scenes are essential for the cinematic ecosystem. I don't know what to call you. I don't have a name. You want to know why? No, no, I don't. I don't want to know your name. You don't have a name and I don't have a name either. No names here. Not one name. The sense of titillation is perhaps a bit forgotten when you look at today's blockbusters. But what people must never confuse is that yes, the way we film sex scenes and the type of people portrayed should and must change from old Hollywood practices. But please, don't we move the whole thing out together? You don't want to leave all the fun to TV shows, do you? I'm always puzzled when people get shocked by the sight of a pair of nude buttocks in films, but no questions are raised by extreme violence. So it's okay for kids to watch explosions and death, but oh, minor nudity, the horror. I am thankful that films like Stranger by the Lake still exist. Okay, il est bronzé, il est musclé, il est bien foutu. Mais je te jure qu'il est bizarre. The French drama thriller about a cruising spot that turns dangerous is a masterpiece. It's sexy, dark, and I was happy seeing it at the cinema. Another one of my favorites, Basic Instinct, is also back this month. in a new restored format. I think you got too close to the flame. <gasps> Nikki liked it. Poverhoven's classic Basic Instinct made me want to move to California. and live in the cliff house the main character Catherine Tramell lived she was performed exquisitely by Sharon Stone the leg crossing scene in the film became iconic and is still a matter of controversy today stone and verhoven disagree in many aspects about the scene do you use drugs mr tramell sometimes you have used drugs with mr boss sure what kind of drugs 
cocaine? You like playing games, don't you? And that's certainly one of the things that must change these days. Actresses and actors should feel safe and not exploited while filming those scenes. But to cut them out completely? Never. Sex is way due a comeback to the multiplex. I don't think we should talk about oh, this. Come on, why not? People might misunderstand what we're trying to say, you know? Oh, but it's a part of life. From Monaco, I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. That was Monaco's senior correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Well, that's all that we have time for on today's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by Sam MP and presented by me, Carlotta Rubello. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programmes here on Monaco 24. Goodbye and thanks for listening.